Good morning, everyone. Pastor Gary here. Today is Resurrection Sunday. Today is actually the greatest day of the Christian calendar. We all celebrate Christmas and such, but today is really the day in which Jesus' ministry finds its culmination. It is today that we celebrate the risen Jesus. And so today, we are going to look at Jesus' discussion with his disciples just prior to his crucifixion and resurrection, because he knows that what is coming for them is going to be difficult and stressful. And so he wants to help them in their daily walk with him. Friday was a day that we remembered Jesus' death on the cross. Today, we celebrate his resurrection from the dead, and we look forward to his ascension 40 days later. But right now, Kind of like yesterday's Facebook post, we live we live somewhere in the middle, <clears throat> right? We're in this weird gray area of life almost. A period in which we look back to Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection, and now look forward to his return. This is the place that the disciples are going to soon find themselves in. And it is this time that Jesus wants to address with them and help them deal with when it comes. <coughs> Excuse me. Because it is in this period that the difficulties and sin within us tend to wear us down as we run this race and look forward to that finish line when we will one day look into the eyes of our Savior Jesus. Today, we celebrate Jesus' resurrection his victory over death and sin. But I want us to walk out of here today not simply feeling good about Jesus, but rather armed with the ability to face tomorrow and the next day. So we're going to look today at Jesus' teaching to his disciples about this period of waiting. So we're going to look at John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. And yet again, I will say that this is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. And it is. This passage, similar to the others we've looked at, is instrumental in our understanding of who Jesus truly is. This passage contains one of the seven I Am statements that are recorded by John in his Gospel. And this one is, for me, one of, if not, the most important. This one, I believe, is so important that it is a core passage for us as a church. This I am statement is recorded in John chapter 14, verse 6. But before we get there, let's read through our passage. Also, understand, this is just the beginning of a much longer discussion Jesus has with his disciples. So I would suggest, at the end of today's sermon, read the rest of the passage. In fact, this discussion continues through chapter 17, where we find what is called Jesus' high priestly prayer. Are there times you're not sure how to pray? Look to that prayer for guidance. <clears throat> Let's read our passage for today. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. Let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus said. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I, have, would, I have, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And now, on you do, and now, and from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us your Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. All right, so first a little bit of background <clears throat> to what has led up to this point in time. Just prior to this, we have read three times that Jesus has been moved deeply in his own spirit or that he has been troubled. The first is found in John chapter 11, verse 33 when Jesus faces Lazarus' tomb and the pain of those around him. We read, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. The second time is found in chapter 12, verses 27 and 28. Jesus was just has just made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and the people had been singing his praises, and then Jesus gives this brief sermon, kind of, and at the end he says, Now is my soul trouble, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. It's real easy to get caught up in the response of the crowd to this, and the miracle that just happened. But what is important for us to realize today is that Jesus was carrying a burden because of the gravi gravity of the situation in which stood before him. Finally, in John chapter 13, verse 21, Jesus and his disciples are seated at what is today called the Last Supper, and Jesus speaks of Judas pending betrayal. We read, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Jesus is carrying a tremendous burden upon himself. And what we need to focus on today is Jesus' confidence 
in the power and promises of God the Father. It is this confidence that allows Jesus to confront each one of these crises in his life. Now, in John's Gospel, the disciples must be prepared to face those same feelings and crises. And so Jesus is going to take some time to prepare them for what is essentially that period of waiting and just living life day by day. The time between the resurrection and Jesus' ascension and his eventual return. That is where we are now. And so, let us listen and look to Jesus to live empowered lives for us to live daily. Jesus begins in chapter 14, verse 1, and he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus knows what it means to experience a troubled heart. We must trust in God, and so placing our faith in God is the first step. Then Jesus makes the next most logical conclusion. If you trust God, then you must also trust me. Why so? Because God the Father and Jesus the Son may be different persons, but they are one and the same God. Jesus at this point has spoken of his departure, but the apostles just are not quite getting it. Jesus knows the stress that both his death and then his ascension, his leaving, are going to create for his disciples. And so he is going to speak of his departure again in order to hopefully help them see clearly. And so Jesus says in verse 2, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? The disciples needed to trust that Jesus leaving them serves a greater purpose for them. We as humans, unfortunately, tend to get caught up in the fact that Jesus has gone to prepare a mansion for us as the King James unfortunately translates this word. That idea has nothing to do with this passage. This is not Jesus' point in this statement. The point that Jesus is making is that his departure must take place because he has another mission after this one is completed. And that mission is to prepare what is next for his church, for each one of us. This is the important part of this verse. Whatever is next for us when we depart this life has been prepared for us by Jesus himself. That should cause us, like Paul says, to yearn to be with Jesus, but to realize that we are still yet here for a purpose. Jesus then continues in verse 3 with this amazing promise, and he says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus is saying, not only is there a purpose in my leaving to prepare a place for you, but I promise you that when it is time, I will return to take you unto myself. This last sentence is the promise upon which we now rest. It is upon the promise which we now stand. I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. I do believe that there is this double meaning to this passage. 
I believe that there are two fulfillments to Jesus' prophecy here. When any of us die, Jesus takes us to himself, and in that moment, we are with Jesus. And then there is a greater fulfillment that we look forward to still yet. And that is when Jesus, with a shout, returns one day in the clouds in order to bring all of human history here on earth to its fullest culmination. And when in so doing, he will usher in heaven on earth. It is this that we look forward to as the end goal of our lives. This is the finish line that we are all running towards right now. This is the greatest promise that we rest in. Remember these words, though. I will come again and will take you to myself. Then Jesus, in the next verse, says, And you know the way to where I am going. So now, take this statement with the previous statement, and let me ask you, what is the way to where Jesus is going? Right? Sorry, hard time breathing. Jesus reveals here very plainly that the way is made by him. In fact, all we need to do is get to Jesus while we are living, and then Jesus will take care of the rest of the journey. Now listen, I think that what comes next is actually completely understandable. I had to study word for word what Jesus has said in order to put that together. An initial reading of this passage rarely puts those statements together for some reason. That's what happens. And so in typical fashion, our man Thomas comes out of the scene. I just love Thomas because he has this courage to state what everyone else is thinking, but is too afraid to say. Thomas says in verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Oh, Thomas, up until this point in John's gospel, Jesus has said numerous times that he has come from the Father and that he must return to the Father. But the difficulty is that these statements seem so spiritual that they seem to lack logical truth for the hearers. This leads Jesus to state what I believe is one of the greatest truths about who he truly is. We read next in John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All right. I believe it's important to break this down so that we can see clearly what Jesus is saying. It is beautiful that we have today the ability and the time to look back on Jesus' words in order to gain a greater understanding that the apostles simply didn't have the opportunity at the moment. So, Jesus' first statement here is, I am the way. We gain access to heaven and to the Father only through Jesus, and there is no other means by which access can be gained. Jesus is the only one who can lead anyone to the place that he is presently preparing us for. Why such an exclusive claim of access to heaven? Because Jesus is the truth. This just leads naturally to Jesus' next statement, right? I am the truth. Jesus is the only expression and revelation of God the Father that we have ever had in human history. 
Jesus' claim to exclusivity is found in the fact that we looked at just last week. In John chapter 1, verse 18, where we read, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus is the only one who has ever seen the Father. And so all truth concerning the Father is contained only within the person of Jesus. This verse places Jesus as the only mediator between God and man. Jesus doesn't simply define his destination as being the Father or heaven. Instead, he says that he is the only means by which man might reach the Father. Why? Because only God can lead us to himself. And so if only the Father can lead us to himself, then the Father must somehow be present within Jesus. Right? Look, this is a continuation of what we read in John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus is the only means by which we might see the truth as to who the Father is. And so, if all of this is true, then verse 7 is the natural next statement. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. But again, there is, as usual, a bit of confusion among the disciples. And so this time, Philip speaks up. And he says in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Philip doesn't fully understand that no one has seen God. It is beyond our human capacity to do so. This is why even Moses was refused his request. However, right before Philip's very eyes, stands Jesus, who is the full embodiment of God, as it is possible for humans to view. And so Jesus clears up Philip's confusion in verse 9, and we read, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? By seeing Jesus, Philip is actually seeing the Father. This is what makes Jesus so much more than what most of the world believes him to be. He is not simply a great teacher or a guide for living your best life now, nor is he simply the means by which we might gain access to some higher plane or the heavenlies. He is the beginning and he is the end. He is the very goal for which our lives must live. Jesus is the only one in whom God can be found and seen. This is who Jesus is right now claiming to be. Jesus is nice enough to give us further explanation in verses 10 and 11. And he says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. So we have already said that 
at its most basic level, the relationship between God and Jesus, Jesus can be described as God's ambassador. And as an ambassador, Jesus carried the authority to speak on behalf of and act in the name of God. But this idea barely touches the surface of what Jesus is saying here. There is this reciprocity between their lives that Jesus is trying to explain. The Father is in Jesus, and Jesus is in the Father. This is speaking of a substantive unity between the Father and Jesus. It is for this reason that Jesus can say in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. This is why Philip can say that he knows the Father, because he knows the Son, because the Father and the Son are one. But remember, the purpose for which Jesus is speaking right now to his disciples, he is seeking to encourage them concerning the days, and in fact years, that are coming. And so Jesus brings all of this back around in verses 12 through 14, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If the power of God can be found within Jesus, and by invitation to know Jesus, the disciple is then filled with the Holy Spirit, and thus gains life from Jesus. Then we must in some manner share in God's power. That's pretty heavy, isn't it? What does that fully mean, though? Well, I believe there are a few implications to this for the disciples and for each of us. First, it's important to see that Jesus says that he must first go to the Father before the promise of greater works and answered prayer can be realized. Second, and we must be careful here. When Jesus speaks of his works here, he is speaking of miraculous works. He is not simply speaking of making homes as a carpenter, right? As such, the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the children of God allows us to do works that are beyond our limited human capabilities. Why? So that we might continue the works that Jesus began. Finally, all the works that we must that we do must be done in the name of Jesus so that our works have one purpose and one purpose only and that purpose is the glorification of the name of Jesus Jesus has said over and over that his works bring glory to the father and now the works of Jesus disciples bring glory to the name of Jesus which in turn because Jesus and the father are one brings glory to the Father. And so, we should see that the moment Jesus departs and the Holy Spirit descends upon his church, two very important promises are realized in our midst. Great works will accompany those who believe, verse 12, and prayer will be answered, verse 13. Please see clearly 
that verse 12 does not only point to miracles, though. Jesus brought glory to the Father also through works of humility, service, and love, just as much as he did through miraculous signs and wonders. If the miraculous became the everyday, they would no longer be miracles. They would simply be the norm. And so miracles by definition must be a rare reality. And we should see that Jesus expects us to do even greater works than these. We need to address what it is that makes these works greater. I do not believe that we will perform miracles that were greater than the miracles that were performed by Jesus. But that's what it sounds like, isn't it? Jesus brought a man back to life. Anyone today feeling up to that one? I didn't think so. And I don't believe that that is what Jesus is saying. Do any of us believe that we are called to do greater works than God? That just doesn't make sense, does it? So what in the world is Jesus saying here? I believe that what makes these works greater is that mere human beings are accomplishing them. It is one thing for God to perform miracles and great works. It is a whole other matter for a mere human being to perform great works that bring glory to Jesus. It is for this reason that the departure of Jesus is necessary, because it is at Jesus' departure that the Holy Spirit will descend upon his church and fill every believer with the sole purpose of bringing glory to the Son. So, what about this answered prayer that Jesus speaks specifically about here? I believe that this is simply an example of what a great work is that we will accomplish to the glory of Jesus. <clears throat> Let's look at it this way. We call the church the body of Christ. So there is a sense in which we should see our lives as disciples of Jesus as a continuation of Jesus' life in this world as the body of Christ. Both great deeds and answered prayer bring glory to the Father because it is Jesus still at work in the church as the body of Christ accomplishing both, as long as we pray in Jesus' name. All right, hold on. What does that mean exactly? I don't believe, even though I do it, that this means that at the end of every prayer we simply say, in the name of Jesus, amen. And then because we prayed in Jesus' name, he has to now answer our prayer. That doesn't even make sense, does it? This would then somehow say that Jesus has provided us with some means to twist his arm into doing our will. That really doesn't make sense now, does it? Okay, so what does that mean? However we choose to answer this question, it must fit within everything that we have said already today. Because our lives are now seen as a continuation of Jesus' work in bringing glory to God the Father. Then what makes most sense, I believe, is that our prayers must fit within the will and purposes of Jesus in this world. That is to bring glory to God. Later, John will even write in his first letter, 1 John chapter 5, 
verses seven, verses 14 and 15, he writes, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, Jesus, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. And so, if our prayers appear to be bouncing off the ceiling rather than being heard by Jesus, you need to ask yourself if what you are asking for from Jesus truly is in the will of Jesus and thus brings glory to God. The hard part here is that there are times that it isn't always clear. For instance, God can at times choose the greatest glory for God <clears throat> might be to receive is not simply to do away with a difficult situation that we're facing, but rather force us to go through that situation. And that on the other side, God will actually receive the greatest glory. When we see this through, and when we see this clearly, when it appears that our prayers are perhaps not being answered like we would hope, we need to ask ourselves, and we need to ask God to align our will with his. And I believe that he will do that. Here's the hard part for us to accept. We might not like what his will looks like for us at times. I'll give you an example. Shortly before my brother's death, I had been asking God to deliver my brother. <clears throat> from the difficult torment that he was experiencing mentally. God didn't answer that prayer the way I wanted him to. Was he delivered? I believe so. He's free from that pain and torment now because he's with Jesus and he has been fully and completely healed. Now, shortly after he had died, I can remember a well-meaning friend from my work saying that it was not God's will that my brother would die. Because how can God receive glory through the death of anyone? This is what he said to me. I was a bit confused because this person said that they were a Christian. I just looked at them in disbelief and I simply said, Jesus. This is why we need to saturate our lives in the word of God so that our wills will be remade every day more and more into the image of Christ. Because God did receive glory through the death of his son. And if God chooses, he can and he will receive glory through our deaths as well. It's not always easy to see life through the lens of the gospel, through eyes tainted by the blood of Christ. But when we do, we will begin to see that even the difficult times are meant for our greater good and his greatest glory. So what? What about today? Today we live in a world that is eager for and defines reality more by experience and feelings than by actual truth. We do this even in the church. Sermons today are oftentimes measured as being good or poor, by the emotional response that they elicit more than by the life-changing truth that they deliver. The problem is that we need to embrace the entirety, the whole of it. In John chapter 14, Jesus has invited us 
to have a profound experience with him. But he has also instructed us in how to think rightly about him. As such, there are some truths that we must latch on to for all that we are worth. First, I believe that we need to see Jesus' departure from this world rightly. In the first verse, Jesus says to us, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Jesus then left this world in order to continue the work the Father has for him on behalf of humanity. Today we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Because in the resurrection, we not only see our own future resurrection, but we need to also see that in Jesus' resurrection and ascension, he went to the Father to continue the work he began here. Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father, and to this day, he continues to humbly serve his creation by preparing a place for us. We must, as his creation, yearn for that place daily to be with Christ. Second, we need to see that when Jesus said he is going to prepare a place for us to go, what is truly important is that in returning to the Father, Jesus is actually making the way for us to go. And what matters more than the rooms or the mansion is that when we go to be with him, we will discover that our residence is a life that is invited into the residence, into the very presence of Jesus himself. The experience of heaven will be one of fellowship with Jesus when Jesus renews his presence with us. The world in which we live today offers only temporal securities and comforts. This world denies the limitations of our own mortality by seeking only what is here and now. We need to see that we are simply passing through this way station, in essence, here and now. Our true home, our eternal security, has already been built for each of us in heaven by Jesus. We need to embrace this reality so that our attitudes concerning this world right here, right now, might be completely changed and our eyes opened to what stands before us and continually seeks to draw us away from our true hope in Christ Jesus. This mindset will create within us an eternal perspective concerning life. When we can lay claim to this perspective, what we invest our lives and possessions in now will change. I believe that one of the greatest hopes that John has for us in recording this is that we might see Jesus clearly. We need to see the resurrected Jesus as the only one who can reveal God to us. And in this revelation, we will find life. Jesus' identity is not a teacher or a guide that reveals God and thus the way to God. Jesus is God. Jesus does not simply show us the way to the Father. Jesus is the way to the Father because he is God and he and the Father are one. In regards to Jesus' identity, there can be no compromise. Our world today does not like this kind of statement. In our world today, we have gone so far from the truth that nothing is as it appears to the minds of so many. This is completely antecedent to Jesus' claims here. 
Jesus does not point the way to the Father. He is the only way to the Father. Jesus does not teach us the truth about the Father. He is that very truth incarnate. And Jesus does not represent one avenue for eternal life out of many. Jesus is the only life eternal. We must see and understand and represent to this world that in Jesus, God has shown himself and God has spoken. And he has done so with exclusivity. There is truth and is found in Jesus alone. Everything else is but a lie. Christianity makes an exclusive claim about the identity of Jesus Christ as the one true God. Our claim is centered in the truth that God was fully present in Christ in order that the world might be reconciled to himself. It is the theology of who Jesus is, the study of him. It is that that makes the claims of Jesus so powerful for us today. The world wants to say that the way of Jesus is great because it promotes some high ethic, some higher love, because it resonates with our spiritual sensitivity. The way of Jesus is powerful and true because in him we find God drawing us to himself. We celebrate the resurrection because in Jesus we find the way to the power of the resurrection within ourselves. I know it's Easter. It's Resurrection Sunday. And I suspect some of you might be saying, Gary, this doesn't seem like a very good sermon to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Where's the celebration? Listen, Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. Here's what we need to see more than anything else from this sermon today that Jesus is trying to get us to see. And remember, he wants us to see this so that we might live every day of our lives in a manner which brings glory to him until he returns or takes us home. Here's what I need you to hear. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are now a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Each of us has therefore been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer we who live, but it is Christ who lives within us. The lives we now live in these bodies, we now live by faith in the Son of God who loves us and gave himself for us. The lives we now live, we live by the power of the resurrection within us. That's right. We live and act every day through resurrection power. That means that everything we do, we are able to do greater. Each of you has been gifted by God the Father through the presence of the Holy Spirit within you, through spiritual gifts. Those spiritual gifts are meant for each one of us to work for the glory of God. And so we need to allow the light within us to shine before others so they might see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Resurrection Sunday should not only be a day to celebrate our risen Lord, but also a day to recognize that the power that resurrected him from the dead is now at work in each of us to bring glory to our risen God. These truths should cause us to celebrate every day in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we glorify you, for we have seen you, we have heard your voice, and we have experienced your deeds in your Son. Jesus, we are blessed by your obedience to go to the cross and take upon yourself the iniquity of us all. 
end to offer yourself up as a sacrifice and to die in our place, all so that we might be forgiven the sin that invades this world. Jesus, we celebrate you this day, that three days you lay within the grave, and then, by the power of God within you, you arose from the dead, bringing glory to the Father. Today, we celebrate your resurrection, knowing that in the day that you ascended into heaven, you sat down at the right hand of God the Father, and you sent the Holy Spirit. And now this day, your church stands strong, filled with the Spirit, and empowered by your resurrection power to do great works for your glory and by your grace. Lord God, we thank you for your great grace that we might know your Lord Jesus, and in knowing you, we know the Father and the Spirit. Bless us this day, that we might be a blessing to those around us, so that in us they might see you. Amen. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless, and have a great week.